seen film fans and all of a sudden I'm just like horse. <laughs> I have not been talking to people. Oh, uh, hi Carl. It's we have twelve days last, of Christmas. Uh, our yeah, we have our last podcast of the year. Yes, it is. And quite a year it was. We'll talk to our guest, Andrew Wyatt, in just a minute. Around minute three, we'll talk soul. Around minute 18, news of the world. Around minute 26, Wonder Woman 1984. Around minute 39, the midnight sky. Around minute 46, promising young woman. Around one hour and three minutes, on the record. Around one hour and five minutes, Sylvie's love. Around one hour and 16 minutes, small acts. Around 125, Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president. Around 127, Andrew will give us his picks. Around one hour and 34, documentary picks for the end of the year. And around one hour and 40 minutes, New Year's Eve events. And a lot of movies came out on Christmas. Normally, what would happen would be people would go out with their families and see a movie on Christmas. They do their Christmas stuff in the morning, and then they go to a movie. That's why Christmas is such a big movie day. And a lot of award movies come out this time of year. But... This year, it's a lot different. It is, and we'll get into that discussion, but I'd like to introduce our guest, our fellow St. Louis Film Critic Association, film critic extraordinaire, Andrew Wyatt. Andrew Wyatt. Hi, Andrew. How are you guys doing? Good. Well, I haven't. We haven't here. seen you since our last Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've had all our meetings this year virtual, haven't we? Yeah. Well, that's pretty much par for the course in 2020 yeah and we're gonna have that still our our awards are upcoming so our nominations are due in two weeks yes which was my idea back in march and no one no one liked that back in march but now they're like you know what that's a good idea yeah at cinema st louis we pushed our best of lists to the 15th Uh it was when everybody owes me their draft lists so we're I think everybody breathed a little sigh of relief about that. Like, oh, thank God. Catch up. <laughs> yeah, some catch up. Gives us all to... some catch up time. Yeah, the Webster Kirkwood Times has actually taken a week off because it's not really, a, it, they just wanted to have the employees have time with their families. So we're not having our uh, top 10 list till January 8th. And I think I was going to do mine for KTRS on New Year's Eve, but I still have to review Soul, Wonder Woman, and Sylvie's Love for you know, for the radio segment. So I'm thinking maybe you push it back. I have talked about all of those things on, on several radio stations. I talked about them on KMOX. I talked about them with Max. I talked to them about 90 on 97.1. I have talked about all of them, but I've not talked to them about you. Lynn, let's start with the best one. Let's start with soul on Disney plus. Okay. It is of all the movies that are out. Uh, Ooh, all right, maybe uh, there might be one that is better than it. But Soul, this was the movie that was supposed to come out several months ago. And this was the movie that Disney Plus gave to everyone as a gift on Christmas. And so you woke up on Christmas morning and you could have chosen to watch either Wonder Woman or you could have watched Soul. Hopefully you chose Soul. Now, a couple of years ago in 2015, Disney Pixar put out two movies in the same year. The first one was The Good Dinosaur by uh, Pete Sohn, which I hated. But that was followed up by Pete Doctor's Inside Out. This year, the beginning of the year, Pete Sohn's Onward came out, which I did not care for. Therefore, I was looking forward to Pete Doctor's Soul 
coming out. And on Christmas Day, everyone got it. And it was well worth the wait. It was. Andrew, what did you think of Soul? Uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, it's we're, we're sort of in this weird place where, you know, Pixar films feel like event films. They're not, you know, tentpole <laughs> blockbusters the way we typically imagine them, but they still feel like event films from the biggest studio. So I, the theatrical experience has always been kind of part of a Pixar film for me. But um, so it is a little bit of adjustment to see it at home. I have not seen Onward yet. Um, but yeah. uh, Pete Doctor, like you said, is I mean, he's been he's ascended to the role that John Lasseter after he was uh let go because of the allegations against him. Um, Pete Doctor's kind of ascended to his role, and I think I don't think it's controversial. Is this controversial take anymore that like 10 years on that Pete Doctor's films probably have the highest reputation of any people still at Pixar? His films yeah. probably have the best reputation. Well, you've got Monsters University. Oh, no, no, so oh, sorry. Ugh, I'm sorry, Pete Doctor. Monsters Inc. Not he he had he did not direct Monsters University. Monsters Inc. Up, Inside Out, and now Soul. His track record is better than anybody. I, th- I mean, I like Andrew Stanton stuff. I love Finding Nemo. And mm-hmm. both they're well, well Pixar, it's a bit troubling with Pixar because you can't really apply like a tourist like they've always said that the whole studio is involved in every production right and they, the director it almost like the director's chair almost becomes a ceremonial position after a while but it does it does seem undeniable that doctor has a certain sensibility in his films and I feel like you can see the up and inside out thumbprints on mm-hmm. oh Soul. especially inside out yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, I was privileged to interview Pete Doctor back when Up was uh, coming out. He and Jonah Rivera came and we did a roundtable with St. Louis Film Critics. It was a Saturday morning and uh, he was doodling. And I didn't know who he was, but, you know, we had to see Up first, obviously, before we could talk to them. And it made you cry, didn't it? Well, yeah, all Pixar. I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying, all, all Pixar's make me cry. So, anyway, um, I uh, and I've been privileged to interview a couple people from Pixar, and all they talk about is that Pixar is story, 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 story. And I think Pete Doctor is a ma- a master storyteller. And so I I stayed through the credits, and they dedicated the movie to their grandparents. Mm-hmm. And so I said to Pete Doctor, uh, you are treating your grandparents with such affection, like they had real lives before they were your grandparents. And I said, like my grandpa, who was born in 1900, he saw Babe Ruth hit a home run and he helped Houdini with a trick. And when I said he helped Houdini with a trick, Pete Doctor, because I was sitting next to him, he just looked and he was like, oh, my God, your grandpa helped Houdini with a trick. So mm-hmm. I told him, yeah, it was that, that needle and thread thing that he did. And, and my grandpa grew up in Cleveland. So this was on the banks of Lake Erie because Houdini always did shows by water back then. And so my, my a little street urchin grandpa and his friend got to pull the string out of uh, Houdini's mouth. <laughs> So, so well, anyway. you, you know, speaking of credits, he does something like this, like, you know, he dedicates that to the grandparents. This one, normally on Pixar films, they have production babies and 
they list all the people, all the people that had children while the while the movie was in production, since it takes so long to do that. This one is a nod to the film. They say recent recent graduates of without spoiling anything, the great before. So they they've adapted the credits to something in this. And you notice we have not said anything about the film. Right, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know how I don't know how much we could talk about this, right? Like right. Without yeah. getting into spoiler well, territory. We, um, I will say that Pete Doctor's influence is definitely there. He co-wrote the script with Kev Powers, Kemp Powers, who also wrote the play One Night in Miami, which is coming out now, now and on Netflix January 15th. But a major influence in this movie is John Baptiste. Now, he is now, the band now hold leader. on a second, Lynn. Kemp Powers, Kemp Powers looks like Joe Gardner. So it's except well, except for his fingers when he's playing the piano. That is John right, Baptiste. Which is John Baptiste. John Baptiste uh, went to Juilliard and he is the band leader of Stephen Colbert's Late Show with his band Stay Human. But he is he is uh, from a very well-known jazz family in New Orleans. And he is tremendous. And so he did the jazz component to this show to this movie the movie is about joe gardner who is a jazz who is a music teacher but he is an aspiring jazz musician he gets his big break with uh dorothea at this jazz club angela bassett right and he literally falls into a manhole That's that's in the trailer, so we're not giving anything away. Right, and becomes this whole boy, and becomes in uh, he is in purgatory between the two worlds, the great before and the great hereafter. Uh, Joe is played by Jamie Fox, being and we all know Jamie can sing. He's had number one hits, and he did well as Ray, and he's having fun in this movie. He's having fun. Now I want to say a couple things. One. Uh, even though the jazz music is music is done by John Baptiste, the rest of the music is done by the award Academy Award winning duo of Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, which is astounding because they they have they're expounding their wonderful uh, cinematic oeuvre because they have not done anything like this before. Yeah, I think I think that is one of the more interesting things about the like the design of the film is that the bifurcation between the new york city scenes which i I guess i'm not spoiling anything most of the film is set in like um in new york city and there's this there's a jazz score that accompanies all of those scenes but when anytime we move over to the you know the the metaphysical plane these alternate Mm -hmm. realities um there's they use that more ambient uh resner and ross score yeah. Which and it's it's very clearly like bifurcated and, and also again i don't want to get too much into the design of the thing if we want to talk about story but um the visual design of the two different halves is also very important yes it's, actually yeah i think there I, are three it's, stories it's really next level animation i think for the new york scenes well now yeah, realistic it, but caricatured it's it's a little it's, it's, it's i don't think very i've much seen like anything like out. it it, well, it's very much like Inside Out, but there's a third element because the Inside Out part, that's the uh, hereafter or what here before or whatever, whatever. The great the, before. The great <laughs> before. That is like the emotions of Inside Out and the 
real world scenes are like the real world world scenes in Inside Out. But then there's a third part, which is experimental animation, which we have not necessarily seen in anything Pixar like maybe on like the spark shorts or the shorts. But you don't really see a whole bunch of experimental animation like they're doing when you're between these two worlds, which is really it's refreshing that after all this time after what 25 years that Pixar is still expanding their boundaries. And yes, this is, we have to say that this is the first Pixar film with an African-American lead um, as with Jamie Foxx and Felicia Rashad as his mom and Debbie Diggs as his, uh, uh, I Pal guess. Paul. Well, he's, 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 he's not a villain, but he's not, he's, he's not uh He's well, just, I he's think just a guy. I think that's another thing that distinguishes this as a Pete Doctor film. No there, villain. There's no villain, which well, is, reminds villain. me. Of, well, yeah, true, but but it reminds me a lot of in 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 Inside Out in the sense that the, the conflict is all yeah the conflict is internal. all internal yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no overarching. You know, we're we're not. There's been a criticism of a lot of Pixar and, and Disney animation feature animation films in the last ten years or so that that the villain turn has always been pretty obvious there's always like a character who's close to the protagonist and then eventually turns um i think one of the refreshing things about doctor's films with pixar in particular is that you don't really get that um and and also there are there once again disney's falling away from having a love interest and so this is not really uh, a romance. There's a woman that's mentioned and we never see her (laughs) that's true and then there's uh, tina fey who plays 22 and if you don't, if you're not a fan of Tina Fey, they address that. <laughs> they say, I use this voice to be annoying. And <laughs> which is very funny because if you don't like Tina Fey, the movie explains that away for you. So she is uh, very good. And Lynn, you know, speaking of late night musicians, the Jimmy Fallon band leader, Questlove, is also in the movie with That's a right. major catalyst part in the film. Well, he's well, he's a whole other level too, because uh, Questlove is in a lot of things separate from you know the the, well, the I roots. Mean, he's got, the roots. He's got yeah. his own. He's got his own thing, and he's around a lot. He does a quite a bit. But Pete Doctor, for instance, like in, in Inside Out, he's from Minnesota, and he obviously had a daughter that age, and so he based it on his perception of parenthood and kids growing up and growing away and all that kind of thing. But uh, in soul, he is asking the big questions, but he's rooting it in a really interesting story because as you said, they haven't had an African-American lead and they went to great lengths to be as authentic as possible. If you read the credits, the credits are just yeah. It's a great. It's a great. There's a great barbershop scene in it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a f- film about black men in New York. There wasn't a great barbershop scene. <laughs> yeah. um, I I do think that like I'm still. I think maybe my maybe my biggest problem with the film. I'm still wrestling with how I how I feel about the very strange like metaphysics slash theology that the film presents. It's like Graham still, Norton's character. Yeah, it's a little. I I think I could. I flowed very. I love Inside Out. It's probably one of my favorite Pixar films. And I I I rolled with the the conceptual craziness of Inside Out a little better than I did with this one. I I had a lot of moments where I where I would stop and go, wait a minute, what? How does this work? (laughs) Uh, But I do agree that uh, I'll call about the the animation. I mean, we only get those little snippets of those Mm -hmm. little in between places. But the the one thing that it reminded me most in terms of being 
Pixar being a little more daring was their um, night and day short, which I think yeah. is one of their better shorts of the yes. last few years. And that's another thing about this film, Andrew and Lynn, is that since we're seeing this on Disney Plus, we didn't get a short in front of the movie. And I know. The- I, I wondered about that. I wondered if we were going to get one, but no, no. Did, no they did, no, Dis- they did release Plus, a short. They, they did, did release Dis- a short. There is yeah. a short, short, uh, a short. What are the spark short that they just released called Burrow about a bunny, which, but not Pixar, but it's not Pixar. Well, the spark shorts are there. Disney and Pixar are letting anyone that works for the company to submit an idea for a short and they will create it for it. And this woman had a very cute little thing. And if you watch it, you should watch Burrow, uh, the spark short on Disney plus either right before or right after soul. But Disney Plus is going to have a lot of stuff in the next year. And so you should see this now while it's still top of mind. And I'm glad they gave it away, everybody, for free with your Disney Plus subscription. And this would have been a huge hit if it would have been released in theaters. Sure. It, and it's very ambitious, too. They don't they don't fall on, uh, you know, old ways. Of- Tropes. Well, I will say that when you're. Our buddy Max had a problem with the first twist. He didn't like the first twist. And I said, but then there's a second twist. And he, once he was in the second twist, I said on the air with Max that the beauty of soul is that it knows where it wants to take you. And it's holding your hand the entire film, taking you from A to B to C. It is very logical how they get to all of these places, even though you don't know where you're going. Pete Doctor takes you there step by step and builds your expectations, tricks you a little bit and still gets you where you needed to be by the end of the film. Well, I enjoyed the journey. We have a lot of films about journeys. (laughs) Well, you want to talk about news of the world? That's about a journey. Yeah. Anything more about soul, Andrew, you want to say, I think it's a very profound and warm heart, a warm hearted film. Yeah. um, I think I'm, was probably a little more impressed by the visuals. I do think it's one of the more visually interesting Pixar films in maybe at least since Coco, maybe even before that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still wrestling with the story and how I feel about <laughs> it. But um, I do well, think it it's took- a, I do think it's a it's a it's a great like late game Pixar film to prove that they can do again, sort of like Inside Out was. It proves that they can do really high concept, um, interesting stories without necessarily falling back onto the prequel sequel nonsense absolutely and as our buddy dan said it took him a second viewing for him to fall in love with it he liked it the first time watched it again and now he loves it i'm 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 skipping over wonder woman just for a second let's let's do the journey movie let's do news of the world that is on apple plus right now and it's in theaters um it's the new tom hanks uh paul greengrass movie it is on apple plus i thought it was only in theaters i think it's coming out on apple plus uh, right after it's in theaters for a short window. Um, it's going to be video on demand like January 15th. And it is Paul Greengrass. Andrew and I were talking about this before. This is their second collaboration after Captain Phillips. I thought there was a third, but I guess there was not. Paul Greengrass from the Bourne series. And uh, now he did a Western with Tom Hanks, which yeah, this is based really on weird. a book by Paulette yes. Giles. Yes. And um, Tom Hanks plays captain jefferson kyle kidd he is a um he was an officer in the confederate army yes and now he roams the 
the United States telling the news of the world. He buys newspapers in the bigger cities and then he goes to these small towns and they pay a dime to listen to him read the paper, but he does it in a very entertaining style. And it's about the news of the day and uh, these calamities and then also some very like our own oddities type stuff, you know. And so along the way, he runs into an abandoned child who um, who's, who uh, was living with uh, the uh, Native American tribe. And you the, guys, the, the Kiowa, the Kiowa. Well, it's alleged that the Kiowa kidnapped her as, as a baby or they it's, it's, un, four, it's unclear. She was four, she was four when. Uh, her family was yeah they took her they took her in after mom and dad so she was an orphan and then the kiowa took her in and then the kiowa family was murdered and so as someone in the film says mayor winningham actually uh she has been orphaned twice and so captain kidd wants to take her to her last remaining relatives uh some germans that are not close and so in the so, hill country, it all takes place in Texas. It looks beautiful, by the way. It is. Uh, one of the things I like about when a non-American director directs a film set in the American West, they have such a fascination for the West, the wide open spaces and the landscape. And the cinematography here is beautiful. Cinematography by Darius Wolski. So uh, a non-American, he's Polish, and he makes New Mexico look just like Texas because New Mexico is this. This is untouched parts of the American Southwest, and it looks beautiful. It is. It's the plains of Texas and then the, the hill country, which is what they say, the hill. Uh, so they have conflicts and uh, they have two major conflicts in the film. Uh, Tom Hanks runs into unsavory types uh, and wins them over wins them over with his readings of the news <laughs> and uh, and then there's a very uh, 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 evil bully that he takes down now Sounds I pretty just, low key for a Paul Greengrass film actually it, well there are there are a couple action scenes and and they are very well done they the action scenes are they're low key but they are extremely well done especially uh the way they're set up and to get you interested and to get you on the edge of your seat for a low-key action scene is something very hard to do and green gas grass is uh, uh, is amazing is setting up the the tension in this i describe this film as true grit with less killing and absolutely <laughs> zero humor all the killing is actually done off screen it, well, not all of it, but most of the killing is actually done off screen. There are a couple uh, people that get killed, but not like in True Grit, either version. And this is a dramatic film, at least in True Grit. You had Matt Damon as the comic relief. No comic relief. This is 100 percent drama. Nothing. Uh, I mean, there are lighthearted moments, but not, nothing to uh, break up the seriousness of the film. Well, it unfolds like a novel. It really does. And to me, it takes it's a slow start. And the second half is way more compelling, obviously. But 
the way it's uh it's a it sneaks up on you yeah i i was interested in what was going to happen and then and then things happen and then you're not interested anymore because you know how it's it it's a it's a movie you know how it has to be they could have made other choices like uh what we're going to talk about promising young woman where they're could that that could have been a choose your own adventure this one you know how it's going to end up around minute 30 but it earns its ending it earns it does. its ending it does. I, will, I will see that all right i like that i like the chemistry between tom hanks and the young girl helena, helena zengel she is a, a german a yeah. child actress and she speaks she, a little german and indian i'm sorry kiawa she speaks Kiawa she, and German. She's very interesting. She is. And there are uh, Elizabeth Marvel is in this movie. I already mentioned Mayor Winningham. Uh, let's see who out. Uh, Bill Camp is in this movie for a little bit. Bill Camp's in everything. <laughs> Ray true. McKinnon, Ray McKinnon, go to guy. You know he's a yeah. Go-to. But yeah, you're right. Bill Camp is in everything. I was like, oh my god, Bill Camp. Hey, it's Bill Camp. Andrew, do you have any questions that we can answer about this movie for you? No, I think you and I talked a little bit about before before the show. Uh, there, Carl. I I think I uh, I think it's on my to do list. I just um, like a million other things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And speaking of scores, uh, James Newton Howard did a very Celtic flavored score, and I loved it. I it swells at the right moments. It's a majestic looking film at times. It's just this fascination with the West that we still have and uh it's it's just very beautifully shot and done and it's a solid story i don't think it's going to be the awards buzz movie that maybe they wanted but paul greengrass the only time he's been nominated for director was for united 93 and -hmm. you talk about tense you talk about and you even know how that one's going to end yeah yeah well yeah, that's still one of those films that, you know, I think is probably a near masterpiece, but I never want to watch it again. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Like, it's like Schindler's List or uh, uh, I, Schindler's List, I think, is slave. rewatchable. Yeah. 12 well, Years I, a Slave. 12 years I've seen 12 Years a Slave three times. So that's that isn't in the same category. Wow. Um, I, it's just very it's a hard watch. Yeah, it is. Um, and the ending kills me every time. But right. We'll, we'll talk more about Steve McQueen later. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the biggest hyped film of the Christmas season and the most uh, divided film for everyone. Wonder Woman 1984. It's on HBO Max and in theaters. People woke up. I know people that woke up after they did their gifts just to watch Wonder Woman 1984. And Lynn, I know you're not a fan. No, actually, um, I enjoyed it way more than I I was set up to think it was going to be awful. And I didn't find it so awful. I don't find it. um, I had issues with the first one. It's fine. Wonder Woman 84 is fine. I know. Like, I didn't think it was so bad. Actually, well, first of all, I have always said this about Gal Gadot. You guys said Gadot, and I changed it, but then James Corden the other night said Gadot, so I figure It's Gadot. She, she said so. She has a screen presence that's She's... off the charts. I mean, you see her on screen, and she is so mesmerizing, and she she's the linchpin in these movies. 
everything yeah. else is secondary. And it's two and a half she, hours long, though. <laughs> yeah, it's way too long. But if she works, then the movie works. I don't know why they said it in 84. We could probably debate that, but whatever. But she is looks like a million damn dollars. And so I'm always just captivated by her. And and she works well as the Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And then as Diana Prince, I have issues with the villains. Yes. With, but, well, let's let's talk about let's talk about both of them. Let's talk about Maxwell Lord and Cheetah, played by the Mandalorian and the Target Lady. So we've got Pedro Pascal as Maxwell Lord, who his heel turn is expected. Kristen Wiig as Cheetah, that they made her into a villain where they didn't need her to be. Her Barbara Minerva was a sweet character. And when she decide when she does her heel turn two thirds of the way into the movie, it's undeserved and it doesn't work for me. Other than that, no, it's she's icky. she's really good as as Barbara, but as Cheetah, it doesn't make sense. Well, the plot here is, and I don't know if this is a real plot because I'm not a comic book reader, so oh, but, okay. I don't know if this is based on any of the real Wonder Woman stories, but. Uh, so this this uh, ancient stone from Roman culture somehow gets in the wrong hands. And what it is, is you can wish on it and your wish comes true. So very subtly in the beginning. And Diana Prince works at the Smithsonian. Because she's and hunting down artifacts, which we know that she was doing when she uh, was in Justice League. Because that's how she knew where everything was. And uh, so she knows about this stone and uh, it's very subtle about how people's wishes come true. Kristen Wiig is her bumbling, insecure uh, co-worker. Who <laughs> She's idolizes. the librarian that will take her glasses off and become beautiful later. It's, yeah, that's it's Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns. Let's just exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And this is a DC movie. So it's not um, Marvel. It's please, please don't. If you go into this movie, don't expect a Marvel movie. DC and Marvel, there is a very specific dividing line. And you can like both. I'm not saying that you have to choose one or the other, but there have been so many. 23 of them successful Marvel movies, and there have been a handful of DC successful Marvel movies. You should not compare the two. They're apples and oranges. And you can Bye. even say that the, some of the more successful DC movies aren't in this universe at all. Look at Dark Knight. Look at the Christopher Reeve Superman. They are not in this universe. And Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman is one of the things that is keeping this franchise alive. Oh, yeah. She was the best thing in Batman versus Superman. And she had really great chemistry with Ben Affleck as Batman. So she, the love interest is is uh, Chris Pine, who Again. died in the first one. As you know, it's not a spoiler alert. And uh, he was a World War II pilot. Well, World War One. World War One. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. Sorry. They, yeah. They skip over World War Two. <laughs> That's right. I'm and, sorry. And Korea and Vietnam, they skip all of that, and they go. There is a flashback scene. So they can bring back some characters from the island, like uh, her mother and her aunt, Connie Nielsen and Robin Wright, 
And so there was a scene with a young Diana, which takes place for a very long time and sets up, sets up. I know they wanted to have Connie Nielsen and Robin Wright back in the film, but they didn't need this setup for so long just to teach Diana a lesson that she's she doesn't pay attention to for two hours. Yeah, it's about truth, like always go for the truth. And it's like some it's kind of like a cross between Olympic Games and Hunger Games kind mm -hmm. of thing. And uh, and uh, Diana was going to be winning as a child, but she cheated. No, she didn't cheat. She just found a way around the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, her mother said she cheated. Robin Wright. So anyway, no, no, but Robin, problem, Robin Wright is her aunt. Robin Wright is her aunt. Oh. Connie Nielsen's her mom. Okay, that's all right. It, you can tell it, it, I don't it, it, remember much of the original Wonder Woman, which came out in what? When did it come 2007? out? 2017? 2017. Okay, so the first one, the last 20 minutes is like a video game, and I hate that in movies. It is. So I didn't. I wasn't all enamored with it, but I like the whole concept of a female superhero and having their due. And Wonder Woman was 70 five years old in 2015 so this is great that the franchise has getting its you know due but this one chris pine comes back as her love interest because she wished it oh and you don't, why are you telling people that that's part of the that's part of the well we know he's back i mean right but we know that it's going to be some kind of comic book hand waving about why he's back. Well, see, that's that's one of the things that is from the comic books that the this stone and the invisible jet and the the armor that she wears those are all comic book uh, things that they've brought over to the DC universe. And I like Chris Pine. He's fine. He gets the scene where he gets to do all the 80s fashions. And if you notice in the beginning, everybody's got the jackets up like Sonny Crockett in well, Miami. He's, he wears a members only jacket for a little bit. Yeah. And he has parachute pants on in one scene. Yeah. So they have fun with the fashion. And uh, but they don't do a lot of music. And as, and DC no. is usually remember how I hated Suicide Squad and it was all about the needle drops. There are there are two needle drops in this entire film. And I said, you're you're doing a movie from 1984 and you're not playing. They play one Frankie goes to Hollywood song and that's it. Didn't they, they use so much like. Fun. Didn't they use like New Order in the trailers? Yeah, they I thought did. that was cool. Like they a like did. a new arrangement of New Order, which I thought yeah. was pretty cool. They did. Uh, um True faith. And I thought, oh, this is going to be in the movie. No, it's not in the movie. They have Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. They could have had so much fun with the soundtrack. They could have done hits or they could have done hidden gems. But instead, no, nothing. You got music from Hans Zimmer again. Well, the uh, the villain is pa Pedro Pascal, who you all know is the Mandalorian. But I uh, know he's from Narcos. Yes. And he's also going to be in... Uh, He's going to be in another movie that's coming out really shortly, but that that doesn't matter. He's he is uh, he is Maxwell Lord, who is a very famous DC villain. In fact, he was just on uh, I think he was on Supergirl. And I get that comic book villains have to be over the top. I don't get all this wind and spinning papers and everything. Every well, there's time. a lot of mystique and a lot of magic. Magic exists in the uh, DC universe. Not so much in the Marvel. Yeah, I guess you could say Doctor Strange is magic, but this is uh, this is actual magic. Well, it gets tedious. He's this uh, TV shyster 
and he's bilking people out of dough and he gets in trouble and he uh, wants this crystal and he maneuvers and he creates this whirlwind of horror of BS <laughs> and uh, it's all about Wonder Woman taking him down but but she is, I don't know if I should say that or what. No. But anyway, it's her conflict. She has a, she has personal and professional conflicts. And if you want to stick around, unlike this, there's not a very final, final scene, but there is a mid-credits cute little Easter egg right after the main credits. So you don't need to stay to the very end, but you do need to stay until the one mid credits scene. And then and it's, it's wonderful. It's great. It's, 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 it's something that could have been done five years or three years ago as well. But yeah. And it's, it makes, it makes you like it way, way better. But I just think this is a, this is a, uh, it's well-made. It's fine. It's just, I don't understand. I thought like, oh, the script's going to be so bad. It wasn't so bad. It's a comic book. It's a movie from a comic book. So you're going to have these broad strokes. That's what you get in this genre. You can't try to transfer. It's not a Christopher Nolan going for the Dark Knight stuff. This is not no. that. This well, is straight the up. The comic main concern book. I've heard about is like if I had to say the number one complaint I've seen on Twitter and so forth has been the length. The people just said it has no reason to be two and a half hours long. It does no. not. No. It uh, oh man, it's got that draggy middle. That draggy middle, and I was like. There's too much of the the villain shenanigans. And the villain and his son, which goes nowhere. The villain and his son, and you think there's going to be a? I I thought for sure there was going to be a twist with there with the villain's son, but no, it doesn't. They set it up, and it goes absolutely nowhere. And it that that uh, uh, let's say that catalyst is undeserved as well, and. There is an actual villain in this movie, and uh, nothing really happens to the villain. No, every time I see Zack Snyder's movie on a credit, I just go, "Oh God, here we go." <laughs> and 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 so he was a producer, but actually, I it, think that's contractually obligated because it's okay. st still in this universe. And they are gonna, they Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot, they do want to finish off the trilogy with an Amazon movie possibly before that or after it so yeah. there will be I'm, hopefully I'm just, um, yeah be so, more. Um, we're middle of the road but yeah you know lynn i watched it with my uh with my nephew on uh, christmas he has he and his wife have a one of those like what 56 no 65 inch 65 inch tvs with the As 4k and the sound and everything so I had a really nice experience watching it instead of on my little, you know, 42 inch thing. Now, Lynn, I know last week you reviewed The Midnight Sky, but I watched it. And uh, when it was over, my wife said, well, that was pointless. So... <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like the opinion has been very divided. <laughs> yes. But I will yeah. say, I was telling Andrew before we started, there is one transition shot that Clooney nails i mean they're shot in iceland all the uh, stuff it, all the stuff up in the arctic is beautiful but one transition shot from space to the arctic is really well done and i even said wow george good job right there and you probably know which scene i'm talking about i think um it's very confusing i had a lot of questions 
I three different timelines going on. Yeah, and and then the the uh, space thing, which I like all those people. They're very good together. It's a good ensemble. You never get the you never get the impression that the captain and the the assistant have the, a the captain and well let, let's just say you you don't know that two of the people are a couple until they outright tell you that they are a couple yeah 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 the whole thing i know that they had to include felicity jones's real life pregnancy in the film but right. they're on a two year journey so obviously it's one of the other people and and there's three so, other dudes <laughs> so you're like okay now the 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 newcomer the girl Kaylin, i don't know uh, is it kaylin i don't know how to spell it's c-a-o-i-l-i-n-n so the last part's K lynn it's, yeah it's kaylin yeah after and her last name is sprinkle after um the uh the netflix um association we get this access to the netflix movies early with this american film institute program it's the head of the american film institute and he comes on he does a little introduction we see the netflix movie and then right afterwards is a recorded q a <clears throat> so uh george clooney was interviewed by kate blanchett and talking about, about kaylin they talked about this girl because they had a picker from hundreds and hundreds of and little she's kids. fantastic with she is not very many lines no she is i uh she's great and she's just like this huge trooper but at first look because clooney hasn't made a movie in a while so uh, he's playing yeah. this haggard dying scientist and it's like whoa uh you know if you're expecting but it's he's very good in it he's he's very good as the character and then ethan peck the grandson of gregory peck plays him in an earlier life and there's and a present day right there's it a takes place in either and takes place in present day and then it takes place 30 years from now yeah who knows what's going i mean they don't they, <laughs> this, i mean this, it's also based on a book and i bet the book was a lot more um specific about what was going on well the book initially was about uh, giving us a lesson in we better pay attention to climate change right but well, this movie has taken vague. on a different aspect because of the pandemic. And so there's a running theme. George Clooney's character is this brilliant scientist who eschewed a personal life. He says, so, well, he says that he believes that if we needed to leave this planet for any reason, there is a moon on Jupiter that heats from the inside out. And that would be perfect for humans to go. And he, that's a theory. And so they send people to go find this out. In the meantime, something happened on this planet that kills or uh, everyone's displaced. Let's just say that. They don't, don't really go we into don't know. That. It's very mysterious. It's very murky. They don't really go into detail. Uh, the There's people on the spaceship who's in communication with spouse. And uh, they haven't gotten any notice from earth which is why george clooney is trying to stop them from a collision course or they're, they're, he's stopping he's trying to stop them from landing in a place that is uninhabitable right but we don't know why so yeah exactly so, so yeah my wife said that was pointless and you agree with her 
Yeah, I um, <laughs> I just I think it's confusing. I watched it again mm-hmm. just because I thought you I missed- did. Yeah, I did. Um, I thought I missed things, and I first of all, my first reaction to it was, well, this is quite a slog, because whoa, and it's slow moving. Oh yeah, and then I thought, well, I overthink a science fiction usually. I have a right brain. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I got to And so I thought, well, maybe I'm missing things. So I watched it again. And no, I liked, I liked the music by um, Andre Desplat that I like the soundtrack, but you didn't care for the needle drop in the middle of it. I don't have a problem with Neil Diamond <laughs> out of nowhere for these people. Well, I did. I did like what Tiffany Boone said. I, I don't know this song. Yeah. Well, this is like, this is like gravity meets Ad Astra meets Interstellar meets, um, what's the other one? Even I don't know, but I only liked one of those movies. So, and I, this one, this one was okay. It it was fine. It's, it's, it belong. I'm glad it's on Netflix because, and it was the number one movie on Netflix yesterday. The it's Clooney. Right. And he's done anything in four years. My one sister liked it, but my other sister didn't. It's but how like, many people? How many people who click play on that on Netflix know that he directed it? All they see is that he's the star. Right. True. Right. Uh, well, I posted my review on Facebook, and a friend of mine said I had to quit midway, and then another person said, "Oh, very disappointing." And then two people loved it. Good. So it's just this whole mix, like you said, it's very divided. Well, it's, I don't. I, I was going to say maybe not so much divided as the. the the critical response seems middling, but there's a handful of people who are really enthusiastic about it. I can see people that would really, really enjoy this film, but I don't know who those people are because they're <laughs> there. Every if we just all have to remember this. And I say this all the time. Every film is somebody's favorite movie and it, <laughs> it doesn't matter what film it is. Every film, there is somebody out there that likes it more than they should. All right, let's well, bring Andrew I, back in. Let's bring Andrew back in because he has the. I know he saw Promising Young Woman, and that is one of my favorite films of the year. Yeah, take it yeah. away. Yeah, I Andrew, was able to catch it. I think it's only in theaters right now. It's due if you don't not comfortable going to theaters. It's my understanding is that um, they have a deal for a VOD release in three weeks, so it should be out in January, um, probably for. 20 bucks or something but if you really want to watch it well um, i saw it, it in a, i saw it in a uh, critic screener a couple of weeks ago and um this is probably we're talking about divisive films this is probably the film i've seen since it's sundance premiere it's been sort of talked about off and on and it now that we're in sort of award season it's back in the conversation and it's it's getting a, a theatrical release um it is I, I really loved it um but i also it's one of those films where i say i love it but i can concede people hating it if that yes. makes sense. Like, I understand. I won't begrudge anybody who sees it and goes, this was a piece of garbage. Um, personally, I loved it. It's definitely going to be in my top 20 for 2020. It's going to be in my top five. I love this movie. And the more I think about it, I, I understand some. The main criticism I've heard about it is that it is too tidy, which the movie can end one of two ways. And either way, it would have ended you could describe that as tidy because if person a gets away with it, that's how things are. If yeah, person, we, we B really gets can't away talk about it, this film. Right. Can we? No, no, that's, that's what I'm saying. And if person B gets away with it, then it, it's tidy that way, which is also a commentary that the world 
if you, what what you expect, one of two things is going to happen at the end of this film, and either one of them can be expected. And that is, I believe, what Edmund Fennell is trying to, or Emerald Fennell is trying to say. Yeah. Well, so well, people who don't know, the, the film Carrie Mulligan stars as this woman. Um, he, she's just turning 30 and her life has kind of stalled out. She's, she's dropped out of medical school after an incident. They, the film kind of talks around it a little bit, but it's eventually re realized that um, her, her best friend, friend yeah, her best friend who she went to medical school with uh, was sexually assaulted by a group of men while they were in school and as a result dropped out and then eventually committed suicide. And Nina, uh, um, what's Kathy is her name, I believe. Is that right? Kathy. Kathy. Kathy is the main character. She has taken her friend's death uh, very badly and it's kind of stalled out her life. And she's now doing a kind of like soft vigilanteism where she's going around to bars, pretending to be incapacitated, to, to be so drunk that she can't stand up and letting men take her back to their apartments or whatever, and then springing on them at the last minute. Oh, I'm not really drunk. You're just a jerk for taking advantage of a woman in the state that I'm in. And, and it is nothing but nice guys. They, the Emerald yeah. Fennel. Christopher Mintz Platts plays like the, the worst like guy you ever went to school with ever. Who, who's writing a not quote unquote writing a novel. Right. And, but then, but it's also um, Christopher Lowell, who was the nice guy on Veronica Mars. Adam you Brody, had, from, who was in, uh, who just last year he was in uh, Ready or Not. Uh, Sam Richardson from Detroiters and from Veep. All these nice guys. And Bo Burnham is the love interest who directed one of my favorite films of the last couple of years, Eighth Grade. But he's yeah. also, he's also a stand-up comic and comedian and singer. And he is a nice guy and he wants to play a nice guy. I actually, I figured out his, everyone's got demons in this film and I figured out his demon pretty quickly. Alison Brie is playing against type. Um, this is kind of like what she did in happiest season, but a lot worse because normally Alison Brie is the, she's the happy girl. And even in the rental, she's um, uh, not, She's not the worst character at the book. Exactly. Three, for sure. Exactly. Right. Um, well, Max Greenfield, new girl. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I saw the Q and A after the screening of it, and with with uh, everybody um, except, yeah, it was like, yeah, well, not like Christopher Mintzplatz, McLovin, and stuff like that. But, but anyway, what, it was the director, and it was Clancy Brown and Chris Lowell, and. Uh, obviously Carrie Mulligan and a couple of people and Emerald Fennell talked about her writing process, but also uh, just FYI, she is an actress and she played Camilla Parker Bowles on the crown. If you watch that, she was she also the showrunner on uh, killing, killing second season Eve. of kill Eve. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So she started writing this because she, uh, she talked about this is toxic masculinity in the me too era. Mm -hmm. But can and, we talk for a minute about the design of it? Because yeah. like to me, like, again, I think the if you describe it on paper, it's sort of like immediately a, oh, this is a film very much it's of the revenge. now. And, yeah, it's, yeah a it's a revenge film. It's a Me Too movie done as like kind of an exploitation film. But the design of it is really striking. And I think this is where sort of Fennel comes into her own and shows that she's going to be a director to watch out for. Because the whole thing just sort of has this weird candy-colored aesthetic mm -hmm. um, that clashes very sharply and deliberately with the kind of, like, nastiness of the plot. 
Um, the whole movie just looks extraordinary. And I, I think even the people who have sort of come out and said, I can't stand the third act or the ending really pissed me off. Um, people who say that still concede that the movie looks great. Like it's it an does. amazing looking film. Well, the parents' home is just set in time. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah Clancy Brown and Jennifer Coolidge. Rapoco. Jennifer it's... Coolidge play like her parents and they haven't like updated their decorating in about 25 years. And Clancy Brown has one of the best lines in the movie, especially if you've experienced grief, trauma, or pain like Cassie has. And it's it's very telling there's a line that Clancy Brown has after it seems that Cassie's getting her life together and I'm not spoiling it because it is a very powerful line. It's a very powerful moment that they have. And the way the interaction between Cassie and her parents is amazing. I thought, I just thought that Jennifer Coolidge and Clancy Brown, they have a, a chemistry that especially person under the traumatic stress that Cassie has been under for the last what 10 years or so it it is very well done and Margot Robbie is a producer on this film I I when her name popped up I'm like wow good for Margot Robbie I I was I was very impressed with almost everything in this film I'm glad that Laverne Cox is just playing a, they're not exploiting Laverne Cox at all she's just in this film as Cassie's boss and because they could have done so many weird things with all of these castings and Connie Britton is doing a heel turn in this too. And Alfred Molina, another sweet, nice guy is oh, great. Great. Just, like one scene shot from Alfred Molina in this. Oh my gosh. It, his scene is it's, it's award worthy, but he's not in the film enough. He's in the film less than uh, Judy Dench was in Shakespeare in love. Well, yeah. it's also a real turning point for um, her. Things. Uh, now, Alfred Molina played Kerry Mulligan's dad in, in education. An education, yes. Yeah. Which is yeah. that everyone has their own connection with each other. And Bo Burnham, as the pediatric guy, uh, it's 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 frustrating and heartbreaking. Yeah. All of these characters. Like I'm well, like with you, Carl. I kind of saw that turn coming you knew about was about, you... about but the boyfriend about bo burnham's character but mm -hmm. it didn't make it any less agonizing to watch it play out to know right. it almost made it worse because you know something's coming right you can't and really the talk about this it, film. the way they did it was very good with the audio uh, right. i thought audio, i thought that was cheesy see, you don't see the video you well, just, we can't, i love that we can't really talk about the ending of this film i just want to say that like again i think that there are people who are going to hate it and I can't really, you can, I almost feel like I can't argue with that. Yeah, if you hate it, you hate it. I thought it was a really um, fascinating, um, I'm still thinking about it, you know, two, two and a half weeks later. Fascinating, like subversive take on a sort of exploitation genre of the rape revenge film. Um, right. Very, very, very unconventional, very daring. So I give it points for that, if nothing else. Now, Lynn, well, it's, like you... the fiction, it's the fictionalized version of the hunting ground. Right. But even, but almost even a little more like, um, hyper real or something like it, well, it, it right. takes place in a universe that is similar to our own in the way that it treats women but also ex in a slightly hyper real uh reality well i, wa um, I want to ask you a question lynn you what? you have you have you've had chill you're a mom and you have adult sons and would you show this to them at the when they were in high school i don't know well, I had, you know, I always had the big talks with them about mm -hmm. treating women 
well and also um uh also about uh when when they before they could drive and they had to drive with me in the car we all got to pick our music and i would say you can't play anything that demeans women and then they would come in they would go this doesn't demean women and then tim tried to get away with kanye west's gold digger yes and he was and like and jamie fox and i said take it out take it out Nope, 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 nope. But anyway, we would have those talks about treating women and then we would run into really just, you know, princesses. And I would be like, you boys never, on the opposite end, it was like, never bring home a girl like that. Please don't. Uh, that's, I, I'm debating on showing my high school junior this movie, but I don't know if I want to because, well, you don't want to shelter them, but you also, and she's 17. This is a rated R movie. Uh, there, it's not for nudity. It is for language and a little bit of violence. Yeah, it's some really brutal violence in the last final stretch. Uh, and, oh, and it's, yeah, hard. It's hard. It's a hard watch. It really is hard. And it, but you know what? I applaud that because something that happens like that, we we just get movie sanitized versions of that. That is probably more accurate to anything. And yeah, I I, I commend it. them. I compared that there's a particular scene I think we're thinking of where yeah. there, there's a there's a very violent scene that's done in like a single shot. And um, I was saying to somebody um, online when I saw it that it, it it's the kind of thing we don't see that often no. in in films, even like over the top exploitation or slasher films don't show it in this way. Um, the only thing that I could think of in recent memory is there's a a, a pretty gruesome stabbing scene in um, David Fincher's Zodiac that uh, is done in a way that films don't generally show stabbings that like you can, you can see everything you can see it over and over again this reminded me of that in the sense that mm -hmm. we're seeing a, an act of violence that's probably commonplace sadly right. enough that but we're seeing it in a way shot in a way that makes us uh, we can't blink we can't it, look away from it and it's that's shot hard. in real time too because you don't know what's going to happen especially in that scene you don't know how this movie is going to turn out and by then it just that and that's where people will probably get upset if that that's the turning point where you're not going to like where this movie is going to go well, the right. Joker, the Joker had some moments like that. Uh, yeah, they, the Joker had two uh, face headshots. Yeah, which now, is bad. Well, uh, one of the things I like about this movie, be, before I talk about Emerald's writing, is the soundtrack. I think it's the the yeah good uh, Neil drops for yes. change. Oh, uh, well, the, the version of the version of uh, Britney Spears' Toxic as she's going to her final destination is great. That version of Toxic, I want that version of Toxic because they just that released. Was great. Uh, uh, um, they just released the soundtrack. Just FYI, but I love the moment when they're in the pharmacy to Paris Hilton. <laughs> song. Okay, I, everyone's everyone's pulling that scene out. I don't think that that scene's great at all. I just think it's it's a, it's another romantic trope and. I mean, well, that's I love part that of the song. point, right? Like, the, yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot in that in that middle segment. We're seeing a lot of those cute date moments between right. Cassie and her new boyfriend. Um, well, she wanted to Emerald Farrell said she wanted Fennel put wanted to put that in because she said it was just it was just silly. It was like how people act when they're in love and just silly. And she goes, "That's the greatest pop song ever." And <laughs> she just won that, and she said, 
Bo Burnham with the can of spam and mm -hmm. and everything. You know, it's just so goofy. And Carrie Mulligan said that that was the most terrifying scene for her. That that's the one that she agonized over because she said she's just not a singer, but she's married to a Mumford. You know, <laughs> she's one of, married to one of the Mumford sons. And so. her her accent, her American accent, is spot on. I it I. I do think there, there were, as Andrew was saying, this film is up for debate. And if you took, if you take a look at the first scene um, where there's blood running down her leg and the Christopher Mintz Plast scene, you'll notice that when she goes to her book that she uh, is keeping track of all this, the scene where she's leaving with blood, there is a red slash mark. And when she um, has a different experience, with McLovin, it's a blue mark. So we don't know what happens. There's a lot of things that are unsaid in this movie that are open to for interpretation, which this movie could be a lot darker than we actually think it is. Yeah, yeah I do. I do think that there's something weird about how the film talks sort of elliptic elliptically for a film that's this sort of trying to keyed into an exploitation vibe and that ends on a really some really um, horrifying notes. Uh, it does talk around the issue of rape a little bit, which I thought was a little strange considering how frank and bold and daring the film is otherwise. They don't, I mean, I can't, I don't even think they say the word that often in the film, but we are, you're right. They we don't say assault. Yeah. We, we see that and, and we're, we're sort of left to imply, but you're right. We see sort of Kathy's methods, Kathy's methods after she's been at this for a very long time. And we're sort uh -huh. of left to draw our own conclusions about what exactly um, her coding system means and what, it, what it entails. But I don't, I mean, the, the point is not the details of the system so much as the point that she has a notebook filled with these, like she's been at this for a while and has spent a day, like you say, a better part of a decade absorbed with this sort of like um, weird idiosyncratic vigilantism she's doing. And she, she, she alludes to a network of people doing this, but you don't know if the network is her or other people doing it or that she just has. Or was she just BSing? Right. To, to you, scare them. You, know? you don't know. Right. And that's she what really makes this movie good. Um, Emerald Fennell said that she wrote this because of the casual way people tr have treated assault like when they're younger. Like, oh, we were just kids. Oh, we were all drunk. Oh, everybody was doing, you know, that kind of thing. And we've seen so many news reports of the past couple of years of all these horrific things happening at fraternities and, uh, you know, you'll have all these lawsuits and then the, the, uh, the woman is always shamed and the guy, like, especially in the hunting ground where these are primo athletes and the colleges get a lot of funding for their athletic programs. Right. And, yeah. uh, and that's why Connie Britton's scene is very also well done. Right. And so uh, Emerald Fennel said she just she just started writing it because it's just this attitude of how people treat it. And that's why she cast nice guys in these roles, because you're thinking, oh, they couldn't do that. Oh, they're not capable of that. And so I find that fascinating that she is trying to explore this boys will be boys attitude. Right. 
I enjoyed. If you guys it. haven't seen it yet, um, relate on a related note, just to mention other felt great 2020 films. If you guys haven't seen it yet, HBO Max has a documentary called um, "On the Record" um, from Kirby Dick and Amy Zierling. Zierling, and uh, it's a it's a film about uh, Russell Simmons and the women who have come mm-hmm. forward about the things that he's done to them, um, and particularly sort of centers itself on one particular um, one particular woman's story. Um, but it's it's very hard to watch, um, and no, there's nothing graphic in it. It's just the the, the the things that the women talk about um, are very intense. Right, and it was supposed to be on another network, and that's why it, it made it to HBO Max because they didn't want to piss off Russell Simmons. I remember. Yeah, and as much as some some of these um, some of these high profile cases have sort of like the men have been instantly sort of banished to purgatory. You look at somebody like Kevin Spacey. Um, Simmons is sort of still out there and is still. Uh, you know, respected in some circles. So it's an important film in that, in that respect. Well, we talked about John Lasseter earlier and he, he was allowed to just disappear without. Didn't he end up at another um, studio recently an animation division at another studio sticks entertainment or something. That's, that's the thing. He wasn't, he wasn't really called out. There was nothing was really done. He was just allowed to do. He was allowed like a lot of people in uh, promising young woman, they're right. just allowed to go off and do something else. I think I think a lot about that line from um, uh, now Patrick Wilson and uh, now Elliot Page uh, film Hard Candy, where he's yeah. complaining that his life is going to be ruined if all this comes out. Um, and she responds, uh, "What didn't Roman Polanski just win an Oscar? <laughs> is your life really going to be ruined?" Well. I, I cannot speak highly enough about Promising Young Woman. It is going to be in my top films of the year. Um, Lynn, you saw Sylvie's Love on Amazon Prime. I wanted to see this movie, and I found the link for it too late. Well, now it's on Amazon because it started Christmas Day. Okay. Yeah, if you have Prime, you can stream it for free. Yeah, so I turned it on because I, too, missed the link. Somehow, I mean, I even applied for the link, and somehow I totally disconnected that it was starting Christmas Day because we had such a long list of movies. And I thought one night in Miami was starting Christmas Day, and so I, I started writing that review. And and it doesn't come out till the 15th of January. There, are, uh, it, it's, it's hard to find out when these movies are coming up. And a friend of ours named Andrew Wyatt did have a Google doc that he was keeping. Andrew, did you still keep that Google doc in 2020? Yeah, it's been, it's kind of in a half finished state though. I told Lynn, I couldn't really pass it on to the critics group yet. Um, and plus confused. it's weird because plus it's a little weird just because I had previously based it on St. Louis theatrical releases and now it's, you know, 90% of it is VOD releases. So um, right. it's a little, it's a little strange, but Lynn, you, you said you like this film a lot. Sylvie's love. I did. I did. And getting back to the list, I'll send you the Alliance of Women Film Journalists because they put out a list with over 400 films. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. But they even miss like bad ones like Doolittle and stuff like that. So not that any, you know, who knows? Somebody might be voting for it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so I'll send it to you with like, I made a list of my own of, and added stuff. Send so, it. Sylvie's um, Love. Sylvie's Love. I like this film very much. It is a romance between Tessa Thompson and I, uh, uh, I looked up how to pronounce this name this morning, Namdi Asomawa. Okay. He is a former NFL defensive back with the Oakland Raiders. 
Yeah, he was in uh, Beasts of No Nation and Crown Heights and a lot of other good films. So he, so they play this couple, and it's set in nineteen. Uh, it starts out in nineteen sixty-two, and then it does a five years earlier thing. And uh, uh, it is uh, her Tessa Thompson's character is Sylvie, and she works at her dad's record shop. And Lance Reddick, great a black a character actor he is really good as her dad he runs mr j's record shop in harlem and namdi is a jazz musician named uh, bobby holloway and he is in the dicky brewer quartet and they play jazz at these smoky clubs and it and it has this just wonderful look about it it's this beautiful period piece set in new york city and harlem and uh he uh, gets a job at the record store and so they're together so clearly he falls in love with her but she yeah, has a fiance oh so his, her fiance is away fighting in the korean war okay and uh so there's this love triangle story, but it's written and directed by Eugene Ash, and he wanted to make a love story with African-Americans that didn't have a lot of adversity to it, that just was a normal romance, but is a period piece. And Declan Quinn is a cinematographer. And so the look of the film is just wonderful. It has a nice supporting cast. Uh, it's all Latino and black actors in the whole yeah, movie. It definitely feels like a film that um, it's very deliberately sort of made in the uh, almost classical, like old school Hollywood Douglas Sirk romance film. But colorblind. Um, not even That's colorblind, because there is, I, like Lynn says, it's not a film where the main dramatic tension comes from um, racial issues. Right. But the racial, it, it is a film clearly made by black filmmakers with a black cast, with black crew, because you can see around the margins how the reality of mid-century black life is sort of woven in. Um, there's a lot of interesting, delicate stuff that's like not mentioned, but suggested about the like the intra-black divisions in class and social status within Harlem. And it, it's it's nice. I, I maybe liked it a little less than Lim. It to, me, Lim. to me, it felt like sort of like one, maybe one notch higher than a typical Hallmark romance. What? Um, but it, but it, it is can't sweet. be that bad. It is sweet. I said, I told my wife that the main thing that's unbelievable is that the main, the, the guy can't confess his love to Tessa Thompson. Like in what universe does a guy not tell, not tell <laughs> Tessa Thompson that he's into her? I, I don't know. Is she in, is she in Valkyrie mode or is she in Creed mode? She, she's in neither. She's in sort of a, a, a little bit more of a demure, um, uh, again, trying, trying, sort of trying to play the, the mid-century American black woman who, with professional ambitions. Her thing is that she wants to be in television, and she sort of works her way up to become um, a producer of a, a local New York cooking show, um, which makes her a bit of a pioneer. So, mm -hmm. um, But she definitely play, is playing a little bit against the typical Tessa Thompson type, a little more demure, a little more. Well, she's the lead rather than the supportive girlfriend or the superhero who's drunk. Right. It is sort of a co-lead. I would say the film does give equal time to, to both of them, but it does seem to, by virtue of the title, it does seem to privilege her viewpoint a little more. And um, this is another movie like uh, Promising Young Woman. This premiered at Sundance in January. And I have said all year, if you had a film in any of the three major film uh, uh, 
film festivals. festivals that you it got bought this year because Sundance happened, Venice happened, and TIFF happened. And if you had a film there, your film got bought. So if you just sneaked in to the Toronto International Film Festival, some studio picked up your film just for content. Yeah, it is a it is a it is a big film for Eugene Ash. He's only made one other feature, um, Homecoming, which is sort of an all black um, homecoming family melodrama, friends and family coming back for homecoming thing at uh, historically black black universities. But this is like a definite step up in terms of production values. Like Lynn says, it it has a sort of um, glowing look to it. The whole film has sort of a glowing look to it. Period. New York. Um, a lot of there's some you know like Carol. Yeah, a lot of glamour. Carol, it looks like that. It has that sheen to it, I think. Yeah, like that. Like I said, that Douglas Sirk feeling to it. It, Again, I felt the story was a little, little conventional, just a just a hair above a typical TV movie fare. But it is a sweet film, and the and the leads are good in it. I was I was just impressed that we had a normal type romance. It didn't have, you know, it's not a big picture big question movie it's just a slice yeah the the main the main drama is that the characters are sort of go back and forth it's one of these things that spans several years and the characters go back and forth and how they feel about each other yeah on again off again one 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 hunt runs hot while the other runs cold and they can't quite meet in the middle until the end obviously big spoiler it's a romance with a a happy ending well yeah if it's a hallmark movie they don't um, kiss till the end in the last five minutes she does marry uh, Lacey, her fiance. I will. <gasps> Spoiler. No, it's. They were they were engaged. The whole movie takes place in mostly in flashbacks, so we're not spoiling anything. Okay. Yeah. No. No. If you see the trailer and stuff, but I like and Jemima Kirk of Girls plays this countess who funds the jazz band, and yeah, some... he is a he is away uh, touring in Europe, which is why you know he leaves. He's concerned pursuing his career she's trying to break into television so there's that kind of stuff and there is some interest again there's some interesting stuff around the margins that the film doesn't it doesn't center these issues but it it makes note of them in a way that makes makes it clear that this is a black filmmaker the way that black talent is used by white management the way that the jazz scene scene is shifts over the course of about a decade in mid-century not, a lot not of stuff like ma rainy not as blatant as ma rainy though. no it, it's not yeah it's not foregrounding those themes the way that ma rainy is but um it's there sort of around the margins of the script which is interesting um you know the civil rights struggle happens almost entirely off screen but you still get yeah. like sylvie's cousin peeking into the movie she's more she's more activist minded and involved in like the March on Washington and so forth. And she sort of peeks into the movie. Every I'm now going and then to, to see rem- Martin Luther King this weekend. <laughs> to, yeah. To remind us of where, when we're, when this is taking place, but, right. but for the most oh. part, it's a film that's, it's a straight romance that just happens to take place in mid-century America with black leads. Well, speaking Which, um, of that, I just, I just, I thought it was refreshing because, because after seeing so many, you know, big headed movies, it was just nice to kind of, Oh, as Dan, as Dan Buffa always says, cleanse the palate. <laughs> and then um, Asia Naomi King plays her cousin, and she's the one that's, you know, flitting off to these different marches and, and everything. I should, probably shouldn't say flitting off, but she's talking on the phone to her about where she's going. And that's yeah. what Andrew alludes to, that that it's just, it's a thread, but it's not a main thread. 
And especially one night in Miami, which is coming up, it's a huge thread about right. what these four icons make. If it they a, would have ever met. What if they, uh, wh why, uh, you know, like, like Malcolm X is on them about getting more involved with their celebrity, what they should be doing with it. But that's now not going to come out till next January year. 15th. All right. So speaking of black filmmakers and the African-American or the African-British, I think they just call them black people over in England. They don't say African-British. Um, Steve McQueen, I, I hesitate to talk about small acts because it is five movies. It is, a, it is a series. It's a BBC and Netflix series. It's a television series. Yeah. It, is, it is not. Uh. It's five movies. It is not one it, I mean, it's a series. I, it, I don't know why looks, people are giving it movies. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm in the movie camp. Sorry. But I, is it one movie or is it five movies? It's five is, movies. Some of them are it, very short. Some of them are just 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 over an hour long. 65, 68, 68 minutes is the shortest one. And Dumbo is 65 minutes. So <laughs> so all these movies are longer than award winning features. Yeah. They're, so, it is five features yeah there is a pattern to them and there's obviously so for those who don't know um steve mcqueen's new series on amazon small acts it's all about uh the experience of uh black londoners in the middle mid to late uh 20th century and specifically west indian uh immigrants so the black jamaican community the black iron community etc and John boyega's in one of them yeah um, and each story tells a completely self-contained story. You don't need to, you can sort of dive in and watch each individual one if you want. It's not really a anthology series or anything. There is a flow to them if you watch them, quote unquote, in order. Um, well, that's how they were released on BBC. They had, right. they did one, one a week. There is a flow to them, um, but you can watch each one individually and they all sort of stand on their own as individual stories. Um, I've seen four of five. I've okay. seen, um, I haven't seen, um, I'm already blanking on the middle one. Um, I've saw the seen the one that uh, so far I've seen Lovers Rock, Red, White, and Blue, Mangrove, and Education, um, all of which are good. Um, I don't the think first, I, the I, first three that you mentioned there there are a lot of of the critics list the top ten list that I've seen so far. Those three movies are mentioned numerous times. Alex Weedy. Alex Weedy. I couldn't sorry I couldn't remember the other. That's one. So, that's number four of five. Yeah, so the first three actually all had festival premieres, and I think that helped contribute to the buzz a little bit. Um, gotcha. They were all at TIFF, I believe. Um, so, but yeah, I, they're all exceptional. Of the, of the four I've seen, Lovers Rock, which is episode two, is definitely my favorite. It's going to be in my top ten list. Um, but they're all Steve McQueen. They're all made by one of the great living English language filmmakers. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have a lot of affection for his for all his films. Um, Wonderful sound design, wonderful acting, wonderful period detail. Um, I don't know. Have you guys seen any of them? I have not. I, I, if I watch them, I want to watch them for pleasure, not to, not for year-end movies. Because can you, if, if, if Lovers Rock, are you, you're going to consider that a standalone film? Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm regarding it as a standalone film. It's made more top ten lists than all of the other ones, but I've seen it on so many yes, top but, ten lists. Yes, but also some people thought Twin Peaks: The Return was one long movie as well. And well, they're I, wrong. well, they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, but I, the, I'm saying that one has that one's got all of the episodes that are episodic. They, these are standalone, and so would 
would Mangrove be competing against Lover's Rock? Or I think so. Yeah, I think I think they all stand on their own. If you want them want them competing in the same category, they would compete against each other. Um, again, because the stories stories are completely self contained, the only thing that um, that connects them is a thematic thread, and you. In theory, you can watch them and walk. You can watch one and walk away from all the others, and you'd be fine. You wouldn't miss anything narratively. To me, that's not episodic. Even though Amazon is packaging them as five episodes, to me, that's not episodic television. That's a feature film. It may be a telefilm, but it's still a film. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not debating the uh, fact that it's on Amazon. I'm debating the fact that it was. He did this as episodic, uh, as as episodic rather than. I mean, just like as we were talking about Ma Rainey, that's part of the Pittsburgh ten play cycle. Right, but you wouldn't you wouldn't and, say that Fences and but, Ma Rainey are are part of a cycle. Correct. You know, like they're, they're August Wilson wrote them as a cycle, but they're not films we put up against each other. I think you can make a better argument that something like uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings is more episodic television than Small Axe is because it's a it's a unified story with three episodes they happen to be feature films but i love that argument i yeah. i agree with your argument right there but th those were uh, i uh, anyway it, they're, they're the four i've seen are all excellent um lo again lover's rock is my favorite it's probably the most distinctive in that it's not necessarily embedded specifically in any strong racial issues or polemics the way that the other ones are it's more of a hangout film the, the plot of lover's rock is essentially it's like a 70 minute film the plot is one night there was a party and, <laughs> and that's pretty much it it's a big ensemble piece about a what was called then called a blues party in london um, a lot of the black londoners were shut out of the white nightclub scene so they had to kind of do their own underground house parties um, where they would play reggae and um, lovers rock and ska and uh, blues and soul. And basically we're just going to one of these parties and sort of flitting around over people's shoulders and watching the night unfold. And there's little mini narratives nested within, within this party. You could follow certain characters here and there, but it's just a amazing, like swooning. I want to go to, I want to go to an awesome party and hang out and just see people doing stuff it's that kind of film but it but made with the sort of skill that steve mcqueen brings to the table so if i watch lovers rock will that make me want to watch mangrove red white and blue alex weedy and education i think so but i do think it's worth pointing out that how different lovers rock is from the others the, of the okay. ones i've seen um the other ones are definitely more of issue what i would think of as issue films mcqueen's trying to make a point about a particular time and place and and social issue. Um, Mangrove, I th I've been describing Mangrove as Mangrove is the movie that uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven thinks it's, it thinks it is. It's a much <laughs> much better courtroom drama about a protest um, and about police brutality. The Mangrove Nine. Yeah, the Mangrove Nine. Um, so, so heard, the, for um, those for those who don't gonna, know, um, I, uh, Mangrove I heard, Nine. The Mangrove on, Nine no, are uh, sorry, sorry. The no, Mangrove no, Nine are. are um, uh, nine black Londoners who were put on trial um, due to a riot, quote unquote riot that happened uh, when a protest march met the, uh, the local constabulary outside a, um, a Jamaican restaurant that had become sort of the focus for local activism in that West End neighborhood. And it, it was a very important uh, trial that despite the fact that these were, this was sort of a protest scuffle between police and um it activists, the activists were actually put on trial at the Old Bailey, which is where like treasonous people in Great Britain get put on trial. Yeah. Um, so the, the 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 government came down hard on them. And uh, again, I don't want to spoil anything if you don't know the history, but 
Um, the way it turned out was very, very pivotal for people at the time. Um, I think the one I saw last night at education was probably the weakest of the bunch. But again, it's still Steve McQueen, still doing like excellent character dramas. So you can't go wrong with any of them, I think. Red, White, and Blue, the one with John Boyega, is sort of the the reverse shot of Mangrove. It's a, a Black Londoner, Jamaican, uh, Jamaican British Londoner who wants to join the police force, wants to become a constable, and sort of the the racism he encounters inside the police department, huh. um, and the struggles he has both in terms of finding acceptance with from the white police officers and also finding acceptance from his own community who view him kind of as a traitor for for joining the police force. Um, really great. I mean, John Poyega being able to do stuff he hasn't been able to do in a while, uh, just a straight, a straight dramatic role done, done very well. Um, and Alex again, Weedle, Alex Weedle is the shortest of them. So that's the only one you need to see. Yeah. That's the one I still need to get to before the end of the year. But again, they're all great. And if you have Amazon prime, you can stream them for free right now. Yep. Lynn, what were you going to say? No, I am so sorry. Cause I wanted to hear the thing about mangrove. I was just going to say lovers rock got, uh, one of the critic awards for s cinematography. I'm not yeah. sure if it was uh, Boston or New York. It was yeah, uh, Chicago. It's nominated in Chicago and it won New York's film critic circle and yeah, Boston. It, it has this sort of woozy, appropriately woozy swooning feeling to it, uh, which, which makes sense. You know, the movie wants to put you in the head where you're at this party with this very loud music and everybody's having beer red stripe beers and sort of <laughs> on the prowl for to get laid that night and it definitely conveys that sort of slightly slightly buzzed atmosphere and the cinematography gets at that there's a there's a central sort of dance sequence for where they, the djs play one song and they um they capture the entire song like it's a four minute scene it's just following the dancers on the dance floors through the whole through the whole song and then the people in the crowd continue singing the song a cappella after the song fades it's just nice. sort of like you know people overuse the term pure cinema but it definitely is like steve mcqueen doing pure cinema just putting you in this time and place among these people it's pretty awesome all right i will all right fine you've you've talked me into watching <laughs> lovers rock this weekend yeah definitely make it part of your award season viewing okay Okay, I will do that. Um, there is only one video on demand movie this week worth mentioning, and it's The Last Shift, starring Richard Jenkins, who's always good. Yeah. And uh, that comes out uh, on Tuesday. We have not seen it. It was one of those that we didn't get access to. Uh, as far as other films after this the the rest of them were coming out late january did you see did anybody see pinocchio with uh robert yeah. benini roberto benini no no they gave us the the invite okay but i didn't take them up on it it was made last year oh it's all italian cast is it in italian well pinocchio is an italian story I was trying to find that out and it didn't say it was so I don't know if it is, but it is in theaters. Okay. I repeat it's in theaters, but I'm sure it'll be video on demand soon. Uh, one of my favorite documentaries of the year that isn't even making my list is Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president. And I inter and I reviewed it back when it first it came, came out. out. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. It's a it's a good movie. It's going to be on CNN. It was a CNN production. Right. So next Sunday, January 3rd at eight o'clock central, they're going to show it. It's written 
by the guy, uh, Bill Flanagan, who has written many books about rock people. And it's um, he was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when it first started. He helped curate and get that off the ground. So he's a really good writer. But uh, what fascinates this is besides going over the Carter, preg- uh, the Carter presidency and legacy, it's his early years where he went to gospel, where he fell in love with gospel music at his small church in Plains and how his music taste grew. He idolizes Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson is his best friend. And it talks about the bands that supported him and uh, helped fund his campaign like the Allman Brothers. So there's that aspect to it. But it also talks about the, the wide swath of music that he had come to the White House during his years. Yep. So it's very interesting. It's not it's not necessarily what you think it's going to be. Not at all. No. I enjoyed it very much. And, now, Andrew, uh, Andrew, we asked this of all of our guests. What movies from the last year have you watched that have made the most impression on you? Ooh, that's a tough one. Well, no, it doesn't have to be your best or favorite. It's just yeah. something something because I know you've seen as many movies as we have. Yeah. You know, Um. Well, let me highlight some a couple that I um, that I don't think people are talking about in sort of year end lists at all. Um, like there are a lot of films that are sort of a lot of critics have been talking about um, that I love too, like The Assistant, uh, First Cow, Sound of Metal, um, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. A lot of those are getting conversations. But let me bring up a couple. One is um, a film called a foreign film called House of Hummingbird directed a South Korean film directed by a first time filmmaker, Kim Bora. Um, she's never made a feature before. Um, just an amazing movie, sort of a slice of life film about uh, a 13 year old girl in Seoul in uh, the mid nineties and the things she goes through with her family. Just sort of, in some respects, it's sort of typical indie drama stuff, but made with just an incredible level of skill um, I can't believe it's a first time film, frankly. It looks like, you know, a film made by a 30 year veteran. Um, amazing performance from the lead actress, a young 13-year-old girl, um, about her family and the and, and like. There's no plot per se. It's just her going through things with her family, her having boy and girl troubles, her having um, a medical issue that she has to deal with. Very slice of life, but filmed in a way that feels like you're flipping through the diary of a 13-year-old girl years later and remembering things in snippets, the way that she remembers them. Um, and just shot with an incredible amount of skill for a cinematographer. Um, it's a film I love, and I haven't even seen it on a lot of um, Best Foreign Film Award slates this year. So I wish more people were talking about it. Available on VOD. Kim Stim released it in the U.S. It's available on VOD now. You can rent it almost anywhere. And what is for the name again? House of Hummingbird. House of Hummingbird. Because Lynn and I were actually talking about this the other day. We don't have a lot of foreign films. We've got... Uh, Oh, yeah. We still need to talk about Minari, if that counts as foreign or not. Oh, God. Let's not even get it. Well, I mean, the other big one would be Baccarat, um, the Brazilian film that's getting a lot of notice. Beanpole is a Russian film. It's one of my, it's going to be in my top 10. Uh, the other one I wanted to mention, though, that I'm not seeing in a lot of list for documentary is a film called Rewind, which was produced by PBS. I believe it had a uh, BBS, PBS First Lens um, release. You can watch it online now, like if you just plug your affiliate into the PBS website, you can watch it for free. Um, it's a film made by, again, another first time film made by uh, a man named Sasha Joseph Newlinger. Uh, and he was an actor, he's a child actor, acted in a handful of films. 
Um, and he was um, raised in a household where he was around a lot of relatives. And when he was young, he was abused, sexually abused by his um, male, so several of his male relatives. And this haunted him for a long time, obviously, and it kind of affected his career and his life. And the the sort of the, the angle that makes it a, a fascinating documentary is that his father was a compulsive uh, documenter. He bought a little oh. like home, home, home movie camera. Is this filmed. the one that's all on uh, shot on home video? Um, you might also be thinking of Time, which is another film that's shot mainly on mini DVDs. Um, uh, by Garrett Bradley about a woman who's waiting for her husband to be released from prison. Um, no, but so I very, think the, the child abuse one is the it, I thought was also shot on. Yeah, well, so not video. the entirety of it isn't shot on that. But what it is, is the conceit that the part that really hooked me that made it feel like a, a film worthy of a documentary, worthy of a documentary rather than about like an, an article is that this Sasha Newlinger's father was sort of a compulsive home movie guy. He filmed everything, like the most mundane moments in their lives growing up. So he has this abuse that he's living with and sort of the the legal, the personal and legal fallout of the abuse is long over. Like he has, he's been to the child psychologists. The, the men who abused him have been put away or they're dead. So that part of it is long gone. But what he's fascinated by is his when his dad, uh, he goes through his dad's library of home movies to try to find was there a sign in this like almost like a forensic scientist he wants to look through the footage can i see what was right in front of my parents faces and they couldn't see by looking around the edges the periphery of this home video of this copious home video footage can i see the abuse signs of the abuse happening of my abuse so he almost views it like removes himself from it as a third-party forensic scientist trying to doc trying to dissect this documentary footage and find evidence of it and it's it's amazing it's very emotional obviously he goes back to a lot of the scenes where he, that his abuse happened like the actual houses and locations he talks with his living the relatives who are still alive he goes back and talks to the psychologists who interviewed him when he was a child wow and the the police officers and prosecutors who were involved in his case um, it reminded me a little bit of david if you've ever read david carr's book um the late cultural critic for the New York Times who went back and dissected his own um, cocaine addiction as if he was an investigative journalist, as if he, it wasn't him, but it was another person. It kind of has that vibe to it. But because of that, um, because of all this home video footage, um, it, that's what makes it particularly amazing. He's like pouring over all this footage, trying to look for signs, almost like an archaeologist. Um, real, again, available through PBS right now. If you just punch in your affiliate, uh, anybody it, can it's stream It's an it independent free. lens Independent lens. So, That's yeah. all right. So, I couldn't remember. No, no, it. no. But you can, you can still. What you said is correct. It's still a PBS. You can find it yeah. on uh, your local PBS. Yeah, I think sure. they they broadcast. It was a Sundance film that they picked up and then broadcast on PBS this year. But now you can watch it online. And and just it's good. Again, it's going to be like it's battling for another film with with that other film I mentioned. Time for my number one documentary of the year. It's it's amazing stuff. Very very intense personal filmmaking. Oh, I've so how many documentaries have we watched this year, Lynn? Well, I've watched like 80. <laughs> That's a lot. It's a lot. And and I'm just looking every once in a while for a documentary that is uplifting and not something that is born <laughs> of tragedy. Well, depending on how you feel about uplifting, the, the Frank Zappa one that was at St. Louis Film Festival this fall, which you yeah. can now, I believe you can now rent on VOD, was is really good. Um, as, as rock biopics go, it's one of the best ones I've seen. Alex Winter. Uh, St. Uh, former St. Louis and yeah. 
directed, directed it. that. There's a I nice Q and A if you go to the Saint the Cinema St. Louis website or the 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 St. Louis International Film Festival YouTube channel. I think it's Cinema St. Louis YouTube channel. But at the at SLIF, uh, Daniel Dershowitz, the movie the music critic in town, he did a Q and A with Alex. So I like yeah. Dan. And yeah, it's, it's worth it. Uh, we've been talking about the Bee Gees documentary. Which I've seen it twice now. I love it so much. And I found out some new information I want to pass on. Uh, the Bee Gees um, have a compilation record coming out on January 8th. It's called Greenfields, but it is all country stars singing the Bee Gees catalog. Oh, God. As it, it, it's great. They, they're just, the songs are written so well. Oh, but yeah. And then, now, and, well, they don't, they're, they're not all included, though. They, they don't have any, no. they don't have one, which was their last American top 10 hit. They don't have You Win Again, which was a, their, another top 40 hit. So they kind of, uh, it's kind of their their music ends after 1980, except for the songs that they wrote for other people. And they they talk about Andy, but they only shadow dancing was the number one song of 1980. And they have uh, I just want to be your everything. And it, it, Andy got the short shift, even though they don't talk about that. He had three number ones in a row. He had the number one song of the year. So, yeah. Well, this think is there's only... like some kind of renaissance happening. Like I think the film is a good moment because it feels like there's a renaissance happening in recognizing the Gibbs as like really excellent songwriters and producers. Right. Yes. Yeah. Thousand but... songs. They wrote a thousand songs. Um, they. Uh, this is only volume one. That's how come they don't have everything on it. But uh, uh, also, there's going to be a biopic, and Steven Spielberg is attached to it. And rumor is that Bradley Cooper is going to play Barry. I can see that. Now, the weird thing is you can tell when Barry's dentures are in correctly <laughs> and when they're not in correctly because he, he, he sounds, Barry needs to see a dentist or get some polygrip because a lot of the recent stuff, he, he, he sounds like he's afraid his teeth are going to fall out. Yeah, well, it's a, but no, as a documentary, it's it's a remarkable. I love it. I've watched it twice now, and I will probably watch it again. It's on HBO Max if you have it. So instead right. of watching Wonder Woman, spend two hours watching that. Well, and the other then, one, the other one I would mention is the Beastie Boys doc on uh, yeah. Apple TV is really really awesome as well. Which, again, a little bit sad in the sense that um, you know one of the one three of is gone passed, now. Yeah, yeah but. Um, but definitely a film made with a lot of love and made with a lot of affection for the catalog and the the, the, the historical highs. I um, love the Beastie Boys. The, I saw the, them live. The Critics' Choice Association named the Beastie Boys as the best documentary on music slash, you know, on personalities. There's been so many good biopics. Have you seen the Belushi one, Andrew? No, that's uh, Showtime, right? Yes, it's yeah. on Showtime. Uh, you can probably get a link because of being a critic. Or you can just watch it on Showtime. Now, Robert. <laughs> Showtime's Rob the one service I don't have, actually. I think it's like Ro the one the one streaming I don't have. I, I liked something about it that our buddy Robert Hunt did not care about. They have a whole bunch of interviews, so they animate them. And Robert did not like the fact that they animated that. He would have rather seen more still pictures and from that era. And I said, I liked the animation. I thought it was well done. 
I like the the movie that they don't the talking heads are all audio usually um uh, well really for the most part but there's so many clips and you forget how funny he really was in his early years that ascended him so so fast because he only did a couple movies I mean what was it 5 years Yeah 5 oh, years Animal House 1941 Neighbors, uh, Continental Divide, and I think that's it. He, the next Blues movie Brothers. he would have been in would have been oh Blues Brothers, and then the next movie he would have been after that would would have been Ghostbusters. Right, and then and then just but the audio and and Dan Aykroyd saying that he he will live with that the rest of his life, and it's just really tremendous. They had Harold Ramis before he died. They got his voice and his wife very much contributed to or his widow and she's since remarried very much contributed to this movie with his letters that he wrote her in high school because they were high school sweethearts yep. and so there's this a, a lot of different components to the movie that really uh work well i thought but uh i know we have to uh, wrap this up this we week do. but Real quick, there are still some hangover, I shouldn't say hangover Christmas things, but this is your last chance to see some things. The brewery lights are through January I'm, I 3rd. went last night. And it's a 10-minute drive. It's really uh, easy. But it's, it's, it's because of the year 2020, it, what, they, what you're allowed to do at Anheuser-Busch I'm glad it seems that they have taken most of the stuff that they would normally have and moved it out to Grant's farm. So it's not as expansive. It's, it's actually like it was 10, 15 years ago before it got huge. Right. Don't, well, like when my mom worked there, it's right. like when we would drive through just to drive through. Right. And that that's yeah. exactly all it is. And but go, come in from Broadway, by the way, don't come in by the highway or at Arsenal. You want to come in by Broadway because you if not, you'll have to drive all the way around the brewery <laughs> to get back there. The The entrance is at Arsenal and Bush Place. So come up through Broadway rather than from the highway, because that's they, where the entrance is. They want you to register online, but, which I did. But then when I was there, they didn't even ask. They for didn't my... check. That was that's for a giveaway that they're doing and oh. to discourage people from just showing up. I think I am, actually might go back out to a lot of lights <laughs> and see that one again. Is that the one that's at uh, Family, Family Arena? Arena? Yes. Uh, the so Muni that's... Holiday Magic was out on uh on the Muni's website webpage. Right. You can go to YouTube and see they have a mega mix of all of them together. And so you can go to the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is pretty much where you can see a lot of, of the programming from the holidays. Just look it up. And the black rep has a 12 days of Christmas. And then because it's Kwanzaa right now, they're showing their, again, a YouTube, uh, you can see their, uh, uh, I remember Harlem, which was their gala. Okay. And so that's available. So if you go to the Black Rep website, you can see the 12 days of Christmas and then also their celebration of Kwanzaa, December 26 to 31st. And uh, let's see, what else is there? Stray Dog is, is a Stray Dog Theater still has the Home for the Holidays. And um, what and are we? Ballpark Village is doing something for New Year's Eve, but 
because of the restrictions, they're doing Rio de Janeiro's Christmas Eve. So it's like at nine o'clock at night and it's very limited occupancy. And so it's people they're people are being creative about how they're having events now. That's one thing this year. What are you going to miss, uh, Andrew, uh, from the quarantine year? What are you going to miss when we get oh, back geez. to semi-normal? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, just being out with my friends, I guess, more than anything like that. Although, I mean, I guess the the, the film critic answer is I miss theaters. Um, yeah. I haven't been comfortable going back to – I know some people have, but I'm not comfortable going back to theaters until uh, the vaccine is, is widespread. So um, just, you know – I'm a so like a lot of film critics. I'm a solo film goer. Like I, I go to movies by myself all the time. So I kind of miss, you know, because hitting, you know, hitting... you you're not going by yourself. You're seeing us there. You know that there will be people you know there, or or even not you get like just going to a movie by myself on my own dime after work. You know that was a that was I used to do that three or four times a week. So I miss that a lot. Um, but beyond that, seeing other human beings other than <laughs> my wife and my son, I guess is the main <laughs> thing I miss. <laughs> So, Andrew, let's tell everyone where we, they can find you on the socials. Yeah, so I'm at I'm on Twitter at Arachnophiliac. Um, that's my handle. I'm also on Letterboxd. You can find me through there. And um, the main the main place you can read me, my main outlet is uh, Cinema St. Louis, which runs the St. Louis International Film Festival, QFest St. Louis, Classic French Film Festival, etc. Um, I'm a, the lead critic and the managing editor of our film blog, where we put sort of our editorial, our, the sort of editorial arm of Cinema St. Louis, where we put our content. We got a lot of great contributors right now, um, so you can read me there, cinemastlouis.org. You can find me on the Entercom family of radio stations, including KMOX, where I talked movies for an hour the other night, and then on 97.1, where I'm on the Weekend Report. And all this week, I'm going to be doing the Mark Cox Morning Show, talking about movies. And uh, I do this podcast and the Maxim Movies podcast. So you, I'm, you cannot not find me anywhere. Lynn, where are you, young lady? That's true. I am in the Webster Kirkwood Times on print now and online. What? Yes. not a thing anymore. Oh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then uh, you can find them at the supermarkets now, too. Like in the, you know, with, with that, with the territory. And then uh, I am on KTRS every Thursday night at 10.30 for the, the remaining half hour of Ray Hartman's show. But this week and then last week, we switched it to Wednesday because of the holidays. And oh, then um, I have uh, my own website, which is a definite work in progress, poplifestl.com. And we're here every yes. week. Real Times Trio podcast. We will be doing our top 10 list next week once the new year. I got to figure that out by next week. Yeah, we told Allied that was our date. Oh, you told Allied. I told Pete to ask you. <laughs> so, yes, I will come up with a top 10 by next week. Yes. And our special guest will be Dan Buffa. So. I like him. So we're going to have a, so we're going to have that. So anyway, we look forward to a brighter new year. Uh, in the meantime, I think we have had a bumper crop of films this year, despite not going to theaters and having to watch mostly at home. I still think we've had a great year. Andrew, thank you for being on with us today. No problem. Glad to be here. Hope I can be back. Thanks to everyone. Have a happy and healthy new year and uh we will hopefully 
Just see movies. Just four more days to this year. That's all we got, right? Four <laughs> more days. Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year. And and stay safe, bye local, and we'll see you again. Bye.